Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, and our chat room monitor, Andrea, await you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room with some truly wonderful folks that join us every week. So, Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. Yes, do come join us in the chat room where the conversation is always stimulating, fun, inspiring. Uh, It's a great community, actually. If you want to get some great friends on Facebook and the other... I mean, now just come in and join us, too. It is really cool. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. In this week's Spotlight, I want to address the notion of separation as we hear it taught in New Age circles today. This teaching generally asserts that separation is an illusion and that we are all one. Further, if we but halted the attention given to duality, duality would cease to exist. In other words, the only evil in the world is in the mind of the perceiver. Change your perception, refuse to acknowledge lower vibrations, hateful energies, and negativity in the world will all go away, because it really doesn't exist anyway except by way of perceptual recognition. Now think about that for a moment. Could it actually be true? When I think about it, I ask this question. Where would the world be today if during the past hundred years we had practiced this art of non-separation? To me, it seems quite self-evident that freedom is the key to our ability to worship and believe as we choose. Indeed, history is replete with numerous examples of persecution of those who chose to think and believe differently under regimes where personal liberty and freedom was virtually non-existent. So, if freedom is the key that unlocks the world of individual choice, and therefore true free will, freedom is the yardstick by which the progress of the world should be measured. We have only to look back on two world wars, armed conflicts in South Korea, Vietnam, Iraq and Kuwait, Somalia, Bosnia, Haiti, Afghanistan, Syria, and so forth, to be able to ascertain the power of military intervention in the name of freedom. The question is, would the world be a safer, more peaceful place today, with more individual freedom for all, if the art of non-separation had been practiced, and aggressors had been allowed to accomplish their aims. Or perhaps they would have just disappeared because we wouldn't have perceived them. Now, sure, there's little doubt but what the military actions in the past were not as successful at delivering the freedom they might have accomplished. But the question still remains. Had the world turned its back and held fast to the notion that evil only exists if you acknowledge it, Would it be a safer, freer world today? 
Well, let's also add into our mix the changes in South Africa and India. India's independence was one at the cost of many lives despite its nonviolent methods. Apartheid ended only after thousands paid the ultimate price before South Africa enfranchised blacks and other racial groups with true freedom. For that matter, our own black population suffered for decades before their resistance finally succeeded, and once again, many paid the ultimate price in winning their freedom. So a simple scan of recent history demonstrates clearly the need to not only recognize evil, but to resist it. America, the land of the free, a model of freedom for the entire world, is it exists only because of resistance, not because of some faulty, albeit noble, notion that we are all one and there is nothing to resist except resistance itself. Now, I must add, the world has made much progress by way of delivering freedom to the human inhabitants of our planet. Technology has made it possible for all of us to communicate across borders and around the world. Technology promises to provide for the poorest among us. And perhaps tomorrow, or some tomorrow in the not-too-distant future, we will be able to recognize the divine right every human being has to be free. However, until then, there are still those atrocities that occur every day somewhere in the world, and I, for one, believe... It is our spiritual duty to act when necessary to protect those freedoms. And denial is simply not an acceptable form of action. I want the world to be a peaceful place where we all recognize the divinity within life and where every human being has the opportunity to live free of the shackles that prevent life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I pray that one day soon the so-called emergence of a new paradigm in human history will succeed and we will know the oneness of all. But until then, I remain convinced that this lofty pursuit will never result from the denial that refuses to see the world as it really is. I encourage all of you to promote the motion of the notion of love as the greatest power in the universe, but to never forget the mama bear that protects her cubs. Sometimes it is incumbent on each of us to step up and protect the freedom we enjoy. For although some may say it is trite, it is nevertheless true. Freedom is not free. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? That's totally correct. You know, freedom isn't free for me. It is hard for me to be totally happy when I'm aware of, you know, so much pain in the world, so much oppression. We're all one, so they are my brothers and sisters out there. So these females in Pakistan and Afghanistan and, you know, all of those kinds of areas, they're, they're part of the family and I can't be happy if they're not happy. I think you're putting your head in the sand if you try to say evil doesn't exist if I don't acknowledge it I suppose because um, that is that is a common attitude out there and you know, it's not true all you're doing is hanging on for something to happen to you or someone that you care about for you to realize that yeah it most certainly does so yeah I believe love is the strongest thing but we have to teach that we have to share that we have to spread that and sometimes that does take force 
You know, I'll tell you what, coming from a law enforcement background, one of the things that we saw work best with juvenile offenders is something called tough love. Yeah. And sometimes the universe is about tough love. And, you know, we might look at our bodies with a lot of love, but attack a cancer within our bodies in order to promote the health of the body. And I suppose, in a sense... That sometimes is what we have to do with the larger scale of this planet. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our guest was Professor Stephen Coslin, and we discussed the new top brain, bottom brain duplex model of how we process information and why we behave as we do. Tabitha wrote, thank you for bringing Professor Coslin to your show. I had read his book, but it all became much clearer to me during your discussion. Richard wrote, genius, this guy's going to make me cry. Wonderful, wonderful. Love the topic, love the author. Good one today. Eldon, you did a great job. This guy is too deep for one session of talk. And I do really agree with you, Richard. We've already spoken with the good professor, and he'll be back on the show in the near future. We're working out the scheduling now. Mark wrote, I think one of the most fundamental questions is the nature of consciousness. Is it localized or non-localized? Great question, Mark. I think my own research and that of many others tend to support the idea consciousness is not a local event. CB commented, very interesting. I can see these newer developments in brain theory becoming similar to atom theory. Schools are still teaching the mini solar system model of atoms. We will probably get left-right hemisphere separation of brain function for years to come. Meanwhile, lay people are misinformed. The depth and breadth and engagement this guest provided was awesome. Moving on, Candace wrote, I can't wait to get your new book, Gotcha. When will it begin shipping? Well, the answer, Candace, uh, Can- Candace I'm sorry, is this week. Pre-orders are have shipped already, and the inventory is on hand at Amazon, so you can now order the book directly from them. And if you're a Kindle fan, Ravinder informed me before the show that the Kindle version will be available within 12 to 24 hours also at Amazon. So get your copy now. A reviewer of the book, Roland, wrote this. Eldon Taylor is known worldwide as an expert on the subject of mind control, but he reaches deeper than ever before to show you the proof of how you are being influenced to do the things you do every day. Each and every statement written about is backed up by documented proof and research. Reading Gotcha made me very angry that I have allowed myself to be controlled and directed throughout my life while all the time mistakenly living as if I were in charge of my thoughts. Reading this book also created an informed student that now knows the steps taken to control our thoughts. This is a book I will be rereading over and over. Thank you, Eldon, for the wake-up call. Thank you, Roland, for the review. Shirley wrote, I have several of your CDs. By far, InterTalk is the superior product, the unsubliminal. Thank you, Dr. Taylor, for your products and services. Darlene wrote, I go to sleep and wake up to wonderful ways in my ears from your programs. It's very easy to wake up with a smile and say thank you for a new day. Your work has changed my whole being. Thank you for living, Eldon Taylor. You are a blessing. Well, I am indeed blessed with fans like you. 
That's all the time we're going to take for letters today. I am truly honored by your words and support. Thank you all. I invite all of you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank you all once again for your letters and feedback. We truly do appreciate you. Now to this week's show, The Death View Revolution with Dr. Madeleine Lawrence. How should one act if they think their loved one is dying? Let's say your father is in the hospital and you're informed that he is not likely to make it. You should prepare yourself for his death. He's unconscious and you're in his room. Is he hanging on for some reason you question? You wonder and conclude that he may be hanging on out of concern for your mother, so you tell him it's okay to go. You'll watch after mom. Now, the TV show Grey's Anatomy aired one such episode where the dad was told it was okay to go, and he did, and crossed over. In the TV series, this all seems so appropriate and loving, but what if dear old dad is not quite ready to go? And what's more, what if he's not quite as unconscious as you think he is? Hearing your words may well be interpreted by dad as your way of saying, go ahead and die, why stick around? Now what? When do you know that a person is ready to die? Or do we ever really have this answer until after the fact? Does it matter? Should we be thinking about death and dying, or should we bury our heads and deal with only when we must, including our own end? Well, think about your favorite books. It's often the last chapter that makes the point of the book. That is... The ending is always important. Isn't this also true of the movies we like? Well, what about our own lives? How important do you think this last chapter is? And if you could write it, how would it go? Enter today's guest. Dr. Madeleine Lawrence is a researcher, author, educator, professional life coach, as well as a certified hypnotherapist and instructor of hypnosis. She is taught research and courses on death and dying to graduate and undergraduate students for over 20 years and has been a director of nursing education and research for a large urban hospital in Connecticut. Her research and writings include an investigation of the experience of unconscious patients, a prospective study of near-death experiences, and a study of the incidence of deathbed communications. She has been interviewed by several publications and appeared on a number of television shows, including ABC's Turning Point with Diane Sawyer. She is the author of In a World of Their Own, Experiencing Unconsciousness and the Death View Revolution, A Guide to Transpersonal Experiences Surrounding Death. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Madeleine Lawrence. Hi, yes, this is Madeleine. I can hear you loud and clear. It's good to have you join us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be talking with you. I loved your book, by the way. We're going to get into that. But what we like to do to begin with is establish three things with everyone that we speak to. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? So to that end, if we can, Dr. Lawrence, let's begin by having you tell us about yourself. 
What were you like as a child? What were your ambitions when you grew up? I mean, were you popular, involved in sports, a loner? When did you decide that you were going to be researching death and dying and so forth? Um, wow, okay, that's a lot of questions. Let me think. Well, um, my uh, childhood, um, I was, I'm an only child, so I always wished I had siblings. Um, that was one of my, my terrorist notions. Um, but I like to play with the other children in the neighborhood, get together with my cousins. Um, I was always a good student. Uh, I did well in grammar school and high school, particularly in math. Mathematics were my, it was my favorite course and probably my best grade. And, um, I was probably hung out with the, Students who are also, you know, in more academically oriented. Um, I don't know that I was exceptionally popular, but I had lots of friends and we did things together. So high school for me was positive. I mean, I know a lot of people, for, for a lot of people, that's not true. Um, my aspirations, though, initially, um, I wanted to be a mathematics instructor. And then I changed my mind uh, and became a nurse. Um, but I really did not have great professional aspirations. Um, I didn't really want to do anything more than, at that time, get married and have a family. That was really kind of my goal in life. And um, I found uh, I liked nursing the part about working with patients. I liked talking to the people. Um, sometimes I got very nervous when they were very, very sick and make, you know, wanted to make sure obviously I did the right thing. And, uh, but academically it wasn't very challenging. I went to a three year diploma program. Um, but then I went back to school and got my bachelor's degree at St. Louis University, which I absolutely loved. Um, that was probably the beginning of my academic career. Um, at the time, um, I had an old typewriter, uh, an old manual typewriter, really old one. And I did, for one of my little projects, I did a little mini research study. And I typed it up for my paper to uh, submit it. And the instructor, who was a nun, um, liked it, but it was typed so poorly that she had somebody retype it so she could show it to somebody else. So that was probably my first encouragement in terms of doing research. And, um, and I thought, and it was a very good, positive uh, experience for me. And um, so, but then I got married, um, kept going back to school. Every time I have four children, every time I had a child, I'd go back to school it was easier to have to go back to school than to go back to work um, because I had more control over my time that way. And then finally, um, re got, received a doctorate in uh, education, curriculum instruction, educational psychology, um, and I had um, a master's degree in nursing. So um, I got interested in near-death experiences in my doctoral program, I took a course with, uh, with Kenneth Ring, 
who is a social psychologist at the University of Connecticut, which is where I was. And um, he was one of the early researchers in near-death experiences. And I was so fascinated. I had never known about out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, until I took this course. And one day he invited a group of people to come to the class who had had near-death experiences, and one of them had um, also had been unconscious. And she could remember what people were saying, even though, even though when they thought she was unconscious. Mm-hmm. So I interviewed her, looked up all the I could find on unconsciousness, and poor Ken submitted this 50-page paper. Um, so, it, so uh, you know, that I think he just shook his head when he saw it. He had to read through it. And, um, and then I went on and to interview the, uh, when I took the job as Director of Nursing Education Research, I was able to interview over 100 people who had once been unconscious and now were able to talk about it. So that was pretty much my start. And, and Ken and I kept in touch, and uh, he advised me along the way on, on a number of various projects, and we wrote an article together. And, and, you know, actually, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about that article because one of the criticisms about the article itself is that both of you were predisposed to believe in, um, you know, um, a religious perspective in the idea of life after death, and that colors your lenses as you interpret the data. So let me ask you this. Were you raised religious, and did you believe in life after death, or did these... You know this this information about NDEs and OBEs um, w- was that so out of the ordinary to you that that you weren't colored? Um, well, I was raised Catholic. I went to a Catholic grammar school, and then uh, St. Louis University was a is a Catholic university mm-hmm. uh, run by the Jesuits. Um, but I don't. Um, I don't believe that um, that colored my um, my interpretation of of the events that are in that article. The um, you know I by that time I had been really more into a scientific mode and 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 more used to looking at data. So I don't, but I do agree that when you're raised. Um, in a in a religious environment, you know the thought about you know heaven or some afterlife or you know it's not it's not an odd thought. It, I mean people talk about it, but you know there really is a I I think a big disconnect between now what's happening in in the medical field when we're talking about what people see and and the religious teachings of an afterlife. So they're like traveling on separate paths from my perspective. But um, but I do think somewhere there's probably going to be a joining somewhere. But I don't believe that I personally was predetermined to believe that this, um, you know, that this was something that I just interpreted because of my religious beliefs. And I don't consider myself very religious at this point in, in my life. 
or at that point either. Um, but I think what I was more influenced by was especially the woman who saw the red shoe on the roof of that ho- of the hospital. Mm-hmm. I mean, what I knew about was critical care. I knew what it was like to be have a cardiac arrest. Dr. Lawrence, that is a yes. great story. I want you to share that, but we've got a break. And so I'm going to ask you to hold that. We'll go to the break. When we come back, we'll have you pick that back up, all right? We're speaking with Dr. Madeleine Lawrence about her life, work, and books. To learn more about Dr. Lawrence, visit her website at Near Death and Dying Experiences. That's one word, Near Death and Dying Experiences.com. Okay, remember to join Ravinder and Andrea in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Gotcha by Eldon Taylor exposes just how far the reach of propaganda, brainwashing, and public manipulation has advanced. You will learn about the many covert activities designed to marginalize your freedoms and educate you to march in lockstep with the agenda of the so-called elite, including advanced technologies used to subvert resistance. 1984 has arrived and the plutocracy is in charge, and most are totally unaware of just how deep the tentacles reach. They don't want you to have this book. There have been broken deals and even indirect threats designed to stop Gotcha from being published. Set for release in September, you can pre-order it now at the discount price of $19.88, with free freight to anywhere in the world. For details, go to eldentaylor.com forward slash gotcha. Don't wait, get your copy while you can. That's eldentaylor.com forward slash gotcha. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Madeleine Lawrence about her life work and newest book, The Death View Revolution. Now, we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music is more important to us than many recognize. It can awaken forgotten memories and has even restored lost states of consciousness. Indeed, music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance for many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. As such, there can be a great deal of self-disclosure in the selection of one's favorite music. All right, we just played Adele's Rolling in the Deep. Why is this one special to you, Dr. Lawrence, and how does it instruct us about who you are? Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, yes, I did I write that as one of my favorites? It is. But I, yes, you I, did. I, yes, I did. Okay, <laughs> yes, I. Um, well, I think it's uh, very heartfelt. Uh, of course, I love the sound of Adele's voice, and I like I like her music in general. But I like it also because it really comes from that inner space, you know, that, she, I mean, you can feel the emotion when she sings it. And um, I think that it's um, what she's describing also is, is a very common uh, experience of loss that people have in their life. And um, now in this case, it was, you know, it's a romantic uh, relationship, but the, um, it, the, the, the empathy that she has, the feelings that she has, I, I just think it's, she does a terrific job, you know, singing that song. So you relate to this music from a standpoint of the loss uh, in the lyrics uh, as well, well as I the... Relate I relate to it in the in the sense of um, the the depth of emotions. I mean, when you work with people who are, um, you know, whether you're counseling people who have ended a relationship, whether you're working with patients who are dying and family members who are now, you know, starting to grieve because they know this patient is dying. I can I and I in my own personal life. Um, although I haven't had, uh, I mean, I have lost both my parents, so I can relate to, um, you know, that feeling of loss and a dear aunt also. Um, I haven't had tragedies like, you know, like many people have, but I've been sort of emotionally with them as they've gone through them. So I can, I can, I can see that I can connect with that, with that song. From that perspective, I suppose, in a real sense, <clears throat> leaving the corporal world behind is um, an ending of relationships of all kinds. Yes, that's true. That's true. You were uh, about to share a story with us before the break. Um, the story, well, you remember. Go ahead and pick it up, would you? Sure. Um, well, the. The, a little bit of the background. The background was um, we were looking, Ken, Ken Ring was looking for some evidence of what people saw during, an, uh, during the near-death experience while they were out of their body right. that had been verified, where somebody actually had gone and then checked to see what people said they saw was actually there. 
And, um, of course, in that article, the most interesting one was this woman who was in a, came in in cardiac arrest, and she said she had a, out of, a near-death experience, went over the roof of the hospital and in the northwest corner. And I'm always impressed where people know it's the northwest corner or the southeast corner because I can never tell one from the other. <laughs> and uh, she saw red too. And um, and then when she you know was resuscitated, came back. She mentioned this to one of the nurses. Now uh, what we're talking about is you know the 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 tendency to believe some of this because of religion. Now oh, yes, in this right. case, what I was saying was, if you know if you've ever been in you know worked in healthcare, been a critical care nurse or a doctor in that sitting you know nobody is going to be talking about red shoes. So it's not like some she could have heard that from somebody in, during that episode. So that was one factor for me. But what happened is the nurse she told uh, the story to um, told one of the residents. So the resident also was curious, so he got somebody from building services to unlock the door to the roof went up on the roof, came back holding the red shoe. So so we could, you know, there was actually some concrete evidence that what this woman had seen was actually there. And, um, you know, there was, as far as we knew, there was no way that she had ever been on the roof of the hospital to see this red shoe. Uh, now, yeah. now, we never did figure out why the red shoe was there. That was that was the puzzle that never got solved. Um, and um, but you know, but it's it's more factual and and looking for evidence um, that that you know Ken and I were both interested in in terms of writing that article. John Lerma tells a very Dr. John Lerma, um, emergency surgeon, tells a very similar story. Uh, where a person, a patient, while out of body, uh, leaves his body and goes up through the roof and, and in the process happens to look down back at his body from um, a position um, approaching the top of the ceiling. And there, high on a piece of uh, equipment, um, is a coin. I believe it was a half dollar, all dusty half dollar. And when he came back, when he was resuscitated, he told this, uh, shared this with John, and John got a stool and got up, and sure enough, there was that quarter, so or half dollar. There are stories of this nature, not many of them, but some, but they they don't seem to have been documented, and there are those skeptics that say, well, you know, that's an anecdotal story. I'm not sure that I, I even accept the story. It could have been planted. They may wanted to have believed it. So some researchers now have actually created like light boards with messages, but they've been unable in the last, uh, what, two, three years, I guess, since it's been going on, to verify this experience. And how do you, how do you reconcile that, uh, Dr. Lawrence? Okay, well, I was one of the first people to do that. To, I, mm -hmm. I don't know if you if you recognize if you knew that. Yes. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> so that actually, we did that, and that was what the the um, turning point.
show was uh, about. Uh, Diane right. Sawyer came and actually was in in the laboratory where we had one of those uh, those signs, and that was in 1994, 93. Um, so we put a sign there, and it was a nonsense sign uh, when. When the ABC TV cameras were there, the sign said, uh, the popsicles are in bloom. And yeah. it was a nonsense sign, so so it wasn't something that, that the person could have heard because, I mean, nobody's going to talk about blooming popsicles in this, right. uh, uh, this electrophysiology laboratory. We're actually, we're actually going to play that video clip during the uh, top of the hour so everybody can see... Uh, okay. Diane saw your interview and what you're talking about. But go ahead, Popsicles in Bloom. Okay, all right. Um, now, what we have found, now, uh, one of the things, unfortunately, that happened is um, we, we're doing this research, and what doesn't show up on the video is I interviewed all the patients that were part of that study before they went into having electrophysiology uh, diagnostic work. So I, I gave a personality test. I talked to them um, about, um, you know, if they've ever had any of these experiences. Now, they were all informed that they could, in fact, need to be resuscitated during this procedure. So that wasn't something that I was sharing with them. They knew that might happen. And so, but we didn't tell them anything about the sign ahead of time. But it was, it was a prospective study in that we wanted to see if the personality changes that happen after a near-death experience were, was really a change or if we could, and we could do that by giving them a personality test ahead of time and then they had one of these experiences, uh, we give it to them again later. So oh, I started doing that, and unfortunately it was the time of downsizing for hospitals. So I, I had a nursing education and research department of 28 staff, which got totally eliminated. So they said I could stay on if I wanted to, but they just decentralized all the education. And also I could keep doing the study, but I couldn't. It was just too difficult to get another job someplace else and then be coming back and forth and doing all this, all this interviewing. And um, Bruce Grayson did something similar with another uh, cardiac group of patients, not not the electrophysiology patients, but another group. And one of the issues that we have found now is that you need a huge number of patients. You probably have to have to interview, I would say, four to five hundred people in order to have somebody have these experiences and then have enough patients where you can do a comparison. And one of the issues with all this kind of research is there is no funding, that there are very, very limited funding. There's some a little bit now, but you don't. So any researcher who gets involved in this is on their own for the most part. Now, I was lucky because the hospital funded some of my research, and um they they were you know I had somebody who had to um, type up the interviews and uh, do, you know put some do some of the data analysis right and um, but that's probably one of the issues 
But I think the issue is, the, the real important thing is to find patients ahead of time and then, and then compare it afterwards. And um, it, it's hard, obviously, to find people who are going to have near-death experiences. Um, you know, that's not always something that's predictable. And these patients, but the, this, the electrophysiology patients at that time, um, a certain number would become unconscious. And about of that um, number that became unconscious, we knew probably a third would have an out-of-body or near-death experience. But you need a, a very large number in order to be able to, you know, do that kind of research. Right. The funding issue is something we, we talk about. In fact, we spoke about it last week with Dr. Stephen Coslin, uh, Professor Coslin. Uh, you know, all you billionaires out there, this is an area where funding, you know, is critical. And if you really want to contribute to understanding the human condition, it's an area that doesn't get any attention. And it's it's an area that would perhaps change how we see everything in the world including ourselves so little pitch there dr lawrence to get you some Thank funding you okay Thank you. now let me let me come back quickly the personality test that you did i understand that you know the study didn't complete but were you able to draw any correlations uh, between personalities uh, on a pretest basis and those who you know experience something in that state of unconscious or that state that we would think of as a, an NDE state? Were, was there any correspondence, any correlation, any personality type that's more prone than another to that? Uh, no, we didn't have, we just had a very small sample. There were a couple of uh, patients who, like, started to come out of the um, experience but nothing, um, nothing that was uh, uh, big enough to make any kind of any kind of generalizations about the type of personality that might have, uh, you know, some of these experiences. Right. So, and then one one other question on the personality test, and, uh, and again, I know that small sample size, you, you couldn't say anything definitively, but you might have a feel for this. Um, into the, one of the arguments, one of the attestations of evidence, if you will, uh, often proffered by supporters of NDEs is how much people change as a result of one. Were you able to validate that actually in a personality test? And if so, what was what was the measurement that you used? Um, uh, well, let, let me answer your question in a couple of different parts. Um, what what we what what I was able to find out in the interviews were that people became a lot less materialistic and a lot more spiritual. Now, for the most part, the personality tests don't measure those. No. Uh, some of them do, but not the ones that we use. Like if you use a traditional one, like the Myers Briggs. Uh, mm -hmm. You can say one is more oriented one way or the other, but but they don't. It's not like a clear that this is materialistic and this is spiritual, but uh, but but clearly, people leaving the hospital show this 
right away. Um, I had uh, I interviewed one fellow who um, had a um, he had had a cardiac arrest in the hospital, and uh, it was in the winter time. So his family came and were driving him home from the from the hospital, and the hospital um, was you know there were a lot of poorer families in the in the area. Um, and and more than average crime also. So so this man left the hospital. It was a cold day, and his wife was driving the car. And he said to his wife, "I want you to stop the car because I want to give that man my coat because it's too cold for him to be walking out in this weather with the lightweight coat that he has on." Now, of course, the wife, you know, looked at him and said, "You know, you want to give him your coat." You know, you're gonna, you want to stop here, you know, and give him the coat? And he said, yes. He said, that's, you know, I have plenty of coats. I want to, you know, this man is cold out there. And so this is, and this is very typical, maybe not so much the coat scene, but the, um, the attitude that people have that the material things are no longer either important or as important as they once were before, that what is important is helping people, being more caring, being more empathetic. Um, and now in the, and in this case, it was, you know, immediate in, in, in that he was just going home from the hospital right after this experience had happened. Yeah. Let me let me ask you this, Dr. Lawrence. I mean, you're a healthcare professional. You deal with this every day. Um, there are individuals who, you know, for all intent and purposes, die. They're dead from a clinical yeah. standpoint. But they come back. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have an NDE. They didn't see a white light. They didn't see the tunnel. They saw nothing. Uh, I have a, an acquaintance uh, here in Spokane who, on a run, um, the Bloomsday Run, just dropped dead, heart attack. But he happened to do so right in front, if Providence is, you know, witness to this man's destiny, right in front of a team of, of uh, uh, cardiac surgeons who immediately picked him up, immediately resuscitated him, got him back to the hospital. What I want to ask him, what did you see? What happened? Nothing, nothing. Uh-huh. But his life nevertheless changed. And, and I've, I've interviewed a number of people who have had um, anesthetic for a major surgery, say bypass surgery, and they come back and they're much more emotional. They see a movie that maybe wouldn't have teared them up before, but suddenly they're, they're crying. These are grown men, you know, the law enforcement types. And <clears throat> so here's my question. Do you think that coming to the edge of your life makes the change and you don't need to have an NDE you don't need to see white light and relatives and believe in God for that matter to suddenly realize you know maybe I need to adjust my life and live differently Um, well actually Bruce Grayson did a research study comparing people who had come close to death or, you know, had a cardiac arrest, flatline, mm-hmm. those who came close to death with an NDE and those who came close to death without an NDE. 
And only about, uh, the estimate is about maybe 15 at the most, 20% of all people who have cardiac arrest or, or, you know, come really close to death will actually have an NDE. But Bruce's comparison was that the, that there is a change when you come close to death, but it's much more, it's much more significant and it's much stronger and there are aspects of what happens as an after effect of the NDE that doesn't happen when you don't have an NDE, even though you've come close to death. I suppose that makes sense. I mean, it's much more profound if you see the angels and <laughs> and the gates or whatever than uh, if nothing. But, okay, let me well, ask you this then. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, it's... It's also that uh, some of the side effects, I, I, I mean, for want of a better word, it's like the person is supercharged, you know, with um, this different kind of energy. Now, what that is, we're, you know, n- nobody knows. I'm just, I'm just, and I'm poorly saying that this is what happens. But, for example, they, they, uh, if they come close to electronic equipment, it doesn't work well. They have, like, if they're at the grocery store and they're at the checkout counter and they're scanning their groceries, they, if they get too close to it, they'll, they'll mess up the, the counting. Um, that, that some of them become more psychic. They, I talked to a man who became telepathic after his near-death experience, never had this before. Um, and he said he'd get on an elevator and he could, you know, all these people's thoughts would come into his, his mind. And he would, even at work, you know, he had to learn how to tune it out. So, so those are the kind of experiences that some people who have a near-death experience will have that don't happen to somebody, even though they've come close to death, um, it, you know, in, in, that, in that kind of comparison. And we don't know why. And and the problem with this research is, like I said, it's not prospective. So, like the the man who who said they he could read people's minds, you know, afterwards. Well, we don't have any pre data on him. We don't. We only know after the fact. And well, then, the, uh, you know, for that matter, so, you don't even really have anything other than his word, do you, doctor? That's right. Now, in that case, that was true, you know. So I wish I, you know, th- these these are, again, these are all opportunities for more research to do right. further testing. We're, be- we're being squeezed with a break here again. I don't want the computer to kick us out. But when we come back, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you some more about uh, what is being done to validate these electrical interferences, psychics, etc., if anything, all right? If you'd like to know more about Dr. Lawrence, her life, work, and new book, The Death View Revolution, visit her website at neardeathanddyingexperiences.com. Now, we have a video for you during the break, the video we've been talking about. Uh, you don't want to miss this, The Turning Point, Near-Death Experiences. You can check it out by joining the chat room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? 
I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Madeleine Lawrence about her work and books. Now, Doctor, we just played your second musical choice, Home by hey, Philip Phillips. Yes, Philip Phillips. So tell us, why this one is special to you? Well, actually, for a lot of reasons. Uh, I mean, you know, the the um, obviously this 
the, the content of the song is about, you know, connecting uh, with a loved one and then building a home. And so family is very important to me. You know, the, um, you know, I love getting together with my children and grandchildren. I mean, it's, it's a very, um, you know, I just love that, that feeling of connection with family. And, um, and my husband's family, when we get together with them, it's always, you know, wonderful. Um, so, I, you know, that's part of that. I also like, I also like um, the, the rhythm, you know, the music. Uh, that's part of it. I like, I like Philip's uh, voice. But the other thing, too, is we watch American Idol. And what I, what I think is wonderful about that show and about this country is the opportunities that are provided for people who come from all walks of life. Um, right. You know, they, they, it's not, um, I mean, people who never would have had a chance to make a popular record or best-selling record, uh, if they go on some of these shows, whether it's American Idol, Voice, or America's Got Talent, or whatever one it is, you know, they, th- this gives them a chance to show what their talent are. Uh, and this is, as an educator, this is part of who I am. You know, you try to develop people, you try to help them so that they can co- become the best that they can be. And, and so that's an important piece of this song for me, too. Now, <clears throat> with your training, your background in psychology... You wouldn't also think then that the fact that you're never alone, that you're going home, has nothing to do with uh, what your work is day in and day out and dealing with those people who are passing over to the other side and comforting them and so forth? Um, I don't think so, really. I, You know, I have to think about that. I actually did listen to one of your shows where you talked about the psychology of music and and the you know how what it tells you about the person's personality and I remember thinking oh I wish I had heard this before I submitted my my choices here <laughs> so um, but anyway the um, I don't think it has to do with going home thinking about the afterlife I, I, I think for me it's more grounded in this in this life. Um, <clears throat> But it could so, be. So we'll ask. accept at least that if it is, it's unconscious. How's that? That's true. That is true. <laughs> so before the break, Doctor, we, uh, you were, you discussed some of the changes that take place with people that experience NDEs, increases in psychic abilities, interference of electrical activities. I just had one quick question there. Has anyone that you're aware of actually conducted a study to determine if these were more than just anecdotal reports. I mean, if we have somebody that interferes with electrical equipment, that's a real, you know, that's an easy one to do. Uh, to do, yes, yes. And and honestly, I don't know um, if people have have done that successfully, like where they've consistently showed that in fact they can they can interfere with electric. Um, uh, well, equipment. I'll tell you what we're going to do. Next week we have Dr. Charles Tart on the show, and he specializes in that kind of stuff. We'll see if he's done that. We'll see where he's yes, going with yes. that. He's, he's a wonderful, wonderful fellow. I, I will say, can I add one thing about this? Oh, sure, please. Um, one of, uh, obviously, the most popular 
uh, and popular is probably not the, quite the right word, but the most talked about experience associated with being critically ill or near death or dying is um, the near death experience. And when I did the, the research on the unconscious patients, what I found was some of them just had out-of-body experience, nothing related to the near-death experience. And, all, and also some people saw people, after they had recovered from this, they had either saw or heard people who had been deceased in their hospital room. So the phenomenon is bigger, in my opinion, it, way beyond that. And I don't. I am. I am very happy to hear that you're having Charles Tart on next week because I'm going to definitely be be listening. But I think we haven't connected enough with the parapsychologists who um, who have done some of this research for a long time. And it's interesting that the uh, International Association of Near Death Studies is located right down the hall, literally from the Rhine Institute. Right. Uh, which is very well known for parapsychological research, and they're just starting to make connections now, speaking, you know, with each other and doing joint programming. And I think that that we can learn a lot from parapsychologists in terms of some of the research that can be done as we're no, we're identifying these phenomena that happen to people who are in medical who have these experiences because of medical situations. Um, and and I think that 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 is hopefully going to be something that we'll see more coming down the road. I'd like to see that too. But you, I mean, you're intimately aware of how easily uh, a statement like that among your peers is going to become suspicious. I mean, you you could even be shunned as a result of that because I mean. You correct me if I'm wrong, but the traditional medical system is just barely turning and beginning to look at these possibilities. It's still pretty entrenched in a mechanistic model that is very materialistic itself in nature, very reductionistic in its nature, and not open to this kind of inquiry. Or have I got that wrong? Um, well, I think that I know. I think you have it. You have it correct. It's uh, very, very reductionistic in, in thinking. I, I would say, the exception are like hospice, palliative care, that edge of of uh, medicine, um, because people have these experiences and they tell their caregivers about them. And even when I was doing the research in the electrophysiology lab, the cardiologist who did his own research on using drugs to treat certain arrhythmias, I mean, he, he, he allowed this research that I was doing to happen because he said to me, when, when patients come back from this procedure, they'll tell me this is what happened to them, and I don't know what to say to them. I mean, he was, you know, there's, there's a group that are more open-minded and I think the public's opinion, the popularity of this topic, and now we even have a TV show that talks about proof of the afterlife. And, and um, so I think public opinion could really sway more um, as people have these experiences. They want to talk about them, and they don't want people to, to look at them strange. 
strangely, when they do talk about them, they want to they want to know what they're about and how come it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and I talked to a lot of people who said, "I'm afraid to talk about this. I'm afraid people are going to think I'm crazy." And and my first comment is, it's it's a normal occurrence. We don't know how exactly it happens or why it happens, but we do know it happens to millions of people. Um, but- your book, you, you you take on actually you you have a correlation uh, between Kuhn's uh, Thomas Kuhn's uh, yes. structure of scientific revolutions. It's it's the Kuhn cycle as it's known in science, but it's how a paradigm actually changes. So you have your normal science, and then the model begins to drift, and that's what you're saying now. Uh, but yes. the, it, it takes a model crisis before we have any kind of revolution or paradigm change. You tend to suggest in your book that we're on the cusp of that revolution. Do you really think that's so? Yes, I do, especially for especially for death and dying, and um, uh, you know that that they're, they're just once it gets to a critical mass which is what I think what we're seeing now with the number of patients. And, you know, medicine has brought this on because we're so good at resuscitating people. So now that we, we are better at resuscitating people, we know more about, uh, you know, we hear more of these stories because people are kind of coming back. We're better at treating um, their, their uh, close near-death kind of, kind of physiological experiences. So we have more and more people who are talking about it. So as you come to a critical mass, you you start seeing more shifting. Uh, it's got a long way to go. I don't think we're, but I I would agree with your description about being on the cusp of it. Um, there's a lot of people who are interested in this, a lot of lay public, and I think lay public can influence what happens. Um, I know Kuhn talks about the crisis. But I'm, I, I've seen, for example, in my lifetime in healthcare, the, what women have done in terms of labor and delivery and the changes that have happened sure. over the years with much better orientation towards the care of the, the, the woman in labor and the family orientation. And that, that was publicly driven. That was driven by women saying, this, we want something different. Well, or think of medicine. I mean, when you think of the pharmaceutical companies, they'll run major ads selling a new disease or bringing a disease that has very low incidence of reporting. I'm thinking of restless leg syndrome. And they'll uh-huh. roll out the, the ads, and suddenly, you know, everyone is reporting restless leg syndrome. The prescription for the drug goes up. But when the patent runs out and the ads withdraw, Restless leg syndrome falls back to being reported at a very minimal, a very you know, um, a lower, much lower incidence. Um, so the lay public talking to their physician, saying, "Well, what about this medication and what about that medication?" They've really shaped a lot of how medicine is practiced today. They they really have a large voice, as you suggest, Doctor Lawrence. Yes, definitely, definitely. Um, well, I mean, and that's what medicine is for. Medicine is to treat people and help them get better. And, and it's not just physically, it's psychologically, emotionally. Um, and for people who have these kind of experiences, 
And and obviously, you know, uh, the, my book in, not only talks about near-death experiences, but talks about something uh, historically known as deathbed visions, which I call death com- death care, uh, um, deathbed communications, because it's not just visual; it can be kinesthetic and auditory. But those um, those experiences are, you know, are rampant. I mean, we we. We, and people talk about them, and yet if if somebody says, okay, I see Uncle Fred sitting in the corner there, and they know where they are, they're oriented, they can they can they know what's happening, they know the other people. The only thing that's different is that they see Uncle Fred sitting in the corner, and so people will say, no, no, don't talk about it. People are gonna think you're crazy. Well, but it's comforting to see Uncle Fred for that dying person. Right. You know that that's that's something that makes them less anxious, less you know feeling the pain less, and we can document that with uh, that we can document with lower amounts of pain medication that they that they are sure. receiving. Of course, um, Sigmund Freud would have his own interpretation of that. He'd call that something like the sugar-coated neurotic crutch. You know, it's brought on out of need. But 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 since you're talking about that, let me. Let, let, let me ask you this. One of the things we hear from everyone regarding death today is how pleasant it is, what a spiritual experience it is, how there is nothing to fear or dread, um, how our loved ones will be there to greet us, and, and on and on. Very little is actually said about the hellish experiences, the haunted and tormented NDEs and so forth. So I have a two-part question, if I may, Doctor. Why do you think the clergy and medical professionals chiefly ignore the darker side of death? And in doing so, are they really doing their patients or parishioners, you know, uh, uh, any service? Um, Well... I, I don't I don't know really why uh, doctors or or um, you know religious people would ign- would ignore that. I think distressing near death experiences um, are not as well reported by patients either. And um, I happen to know because uh, Bruce Grayson and Nancy Bush are the two people who have written a lot about that that phenomenon and there are different types of distressing near-death experiences uh, some people are in a void some people do see hellish kind of figures um, you know similar to ghosts you know where you see the little black figures in that yeah, in that movie the grim reaper right uh, yeah and um, so I think the um, but I think also people uh, are reluctant to talk about them if they've had them happen to them. And so we don't have as much good information about them. I did interview uh, a man who had a distressing near-death experience, and he said to me, I didn't want to talk about it. First of all, not only would they think I was crazy, they'd also think I was bad. So, So that's the connotation is if you, you know, for some people, they were afraid that if they talked about seeing hellish experiences that people would say, oh, my goodness, you must have been a bad person. But that's actually that's not true. That's not been shown to, to correlate that necessarily people who have had distressing near-death experiences have been, um, you know, have lived, um, you know, amoral lives. 
and and sometimes people who have been, you know, maybe not the best wife have had positive near-death experiences. So we really don't know the connection there, um, but we do know that, that there's certainly a lot less reporting of distressing near-death experiences than the positive ones. But like you but said, I, I mean, would... if you had a bit, one of those experiences, you would be really reluctant to say, well, you know, unlike John, who's going to heaven, I guess I'm going to hell. Uh, because I must have been a bad guy. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you would you would withhold that. But it gives rise, the fact that they exist, and as you say, are underreported, and we can just assume that that's a certainty, um, it does give rise to, you know, a couple of questions. How do we know they're not hallucinations? <clears throat> and and if, the, if the, the Grim Reaper is a hallucination, why not the, the angels? Uh, and or what are the other possibilities? I mean, Kevin Nelson, Dr. Kevin Nelson, who I'm sure you're familiar with, argues that it's an NDE event, and there are all these, you know, dying brain theories, uh, oxygen, neurochemicals, da 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 da. How can we just dismiss that and say, well, no, I'm certain that these these are credible, and at the same time, then throw out the Grim Reaper type. I mean, well, that's a really me? good question. Um, I there's a couple of things. One is the deathbed communications. Um, they can distinguish that from a morphine hallucination. In that, first of all, the deathbed communication is, as I said earlier, the person is aware of everything else. They're they're you know oriented to time, person, and place, but this this one other event is is happening to them. You know, they see somebody, they hear somebody, but mm-hmm. everything else they understand. Now, when you have, for example, morphine, um, you know, delusions or hallucinations, you know, everything is confused. Uh, the deathbed communications also are very short. Usually they're, you know, a few minutes at the most. You know, they don't tend to be ongoing, where the others tend to be much longer and the same thing is true with dementia. So, so you you have you can use those kind of as a markers to decide. Um, now, the question the the question is though, what we don't know is why they happen again to some people and not to others. Um, now, deathbed communications don't happen to everybody, just like near death experiences don't happen to everybody. So what is different about the people who have these experiences and the ones that don't? And um, not, and they're not, you know, nobody really knows the answer. When you talk about, when you talk about the, the, some of the theories like oxygen deprivation, you have lots of people who have oxygen deprivation who also don't have near-death experiences. So if, you, if, you, if that was true, then you'd have a whole lot more people having but as a, as a psychologist, you understand the unconscious layer uh, and that that aspect of of our need to um, express ourselves in a way that what shall we say um, is is eternally optimistic about our survival, uh, uh-huh. and be, and because of that. 
we can have subconscious psychological motives that manifest in a variety of ways depending on how we're responding to the stimuli, fear or expectation, uh, so on and so forth. So couldn't that be the underlying, here it is, uh, this is why some people don't have and other people do have these experiences, or have I got that all wrong? Um, well, I think for most of these people, it's a shock that this has happened. You know, it's not uh, necessarily something that they were hoping would happen because of their, um, I, hello, I'm just. Hello. Well, we'll get her back. I don't know how we lost Dr. Lawrence, but the studio will get her back, and we have a break that's about 30 seconds away, so I'll take this opportunity to remind you uh, to join our chat room at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat, because in this next half hour, we will take your phone calls, and we will uh, we will entertain your questions advanced out of our chat room. The bottom line is this. We'll get uh, Dr. Lawrence back on here, and we'll get the rest of that. We're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook and or drop me an email at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com. I love sharing your letters and comments and your questions. You put forward some great ones, and that's a great way for you to participate. We'll be right back following this short break. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With InnerTalk, Elton Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. InnerTalk works by priming how you talk to yourself and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals. Anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your towel today. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show. Leaves you high and dry. I'll be at your door tonight if you need help. If you need help, I'll shut down the city lights. I'll lie, cheat, I'll beg and bribe to make you well. To make you well. When enemies are at your door, I'll carry you away from war. If you need help, if you need help, your hope dangling by a string. I'll share in your suffering to make you well. To make you well Give me reasons to believe That you would do the same for me And I would do it for you
after you're gone, gone, gone. When you fall like a statue, I'm gonna be there to catch you, put you on your feet, you on your feet. And if your well is empty, not a thing will prevent me. Tell me what you need, what do you need? Welcome back. We've been chatting with Dr. Madeleine Lawrence about her life, work, and books in a world of their own, experiencing unconsciousness and the death view revolution, a guide to transpersonal experiences surrounding death. And if you're interested in this subject, I tell you these are two of the best that I have ever read. In this half hour, we will take your calls, so if you have questions... Give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback, and a great place for that is on Facebook, so I invite you to join me there today. All right, Dr. Lawrence, I understand you had a battery fail or something on your phone. But yes, we just I'm played... sorry. Yes, I heard the phone go beep, beep, so I tried to run to the other other phone, but I didn't get there fast enough. So. <laughs> All right, well, but we've got you back. All right, we just played your third musical choice, Gone, 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 by Philip Phillips again. So, why this yeah. one? Oh, I, you know, see, this is great. I, I love your show. I get to listen to my favorite song, too. Um, <laughs> this one is obviously the uh, content is romantic, so so that's important to me also, you know, to have, you know, that, that connection with a loved one. But I think it's also about commitment. It's also commitment. It's not just romantic. It's also about friends and and how connected, you know, if how what those positive connections do for us, and so how people can help each other uh, when you have a bad day or when life's not doing, you know, going well. You know, you really need somebody to be there for you and to help you out. And, of course, being a nurse, you know, that the whole health profession, um, you know, should be oriented in that direction, and generally it is. I think that I've met some wonderful, wonderful people who were doctors and nurses who, you know, give, uh, you know, more than more than 100%, and then they give some more uh, to help people and be that support. So I think, and then, and of course, his, his Philip Phillips tone is, Again, very emotional, and, and you feel like he really believes in what he's singing. So that that appeals to me, too, that emotional honesty. Um, I, I love the music. I love the beat. But it's hard for me to resist the fact that gone, gone, gone isn't maybe talking about, you know, we're leaving this life and... Uh, and yeah, we need yeah. that. We need that help. Well, you know, in that last chapter, it kind of reminds me of the setup. So let me ask you this: You heard the setup piece. Should we care about the last chapter of our lives before we need to? I mean, do you think we should do more than make out a will and handle the legal side of death planning? And if so, what is it we should do? Um, well, I think there's there's a lot that. Uh, make people's 
uh, dying easier and uh, more comforting. I think that people who feel like um, they they have accomplished a purpose, they have fulfilled a mission, or and it doesn't have to be this big, big, huge, huge thing. It can be raising children. It can be taking care of, um, you know, a neighbor or, you know, whatever, whatever that person feels was their purpose here. If once that, if, if when people are dying, if they feel good about having done that, that makes that passage a whole lot easier. And that's obviously something that we have to do very early on. You can't just do that the last, you know, the last couple weeks, although some people, some people do. Um, but I think that that's, that's a big comfort. I think saying to people what, um, you know, what you feel, especially those warm emotional connections, you know, we're not always a society that tells people we love them, that we care about them, that they're important to us. Um, and I think that that's really an important step in that final, final phase of, of um, passing on. Um, I think when you're, when you're, um, you know, when you work, when you feel like you're, what you, what you're, were here to do is done, and it's done to, to where it makes you happy. Um, I think that's, that's a big, that's a big process. Um, but also, you know, I think you, you need to also think about whether you want to be at home, whether you want to be in the hospital. I think it's important to have a good, uh, good physician who's going to manage any pain issues or symptom issues. Um, I can't say enough for hospice. I mean, I worked as a hospice coordinator for two years and then was a part-time uh, home care supervisor for a large agency that had a hospice program that would call the patients would often call on the weekend. Mm-hmm. And, and it really is important that people take care of people when they're dying, you know, both their physical needs as well as their spiritual and psychological needs. It sounds like if we want to die, and, and I'm basing this on what you've just said, but also on dozens of other interviews that I've done, more than dozens, I guess, at this point, with hospice care professionals, uh, both nurses and, and physicians, uh, and having been uh, involved in a hospice as a spiritual advisor myself, that, that we should live as though we are dying. Uh, if we were to do that, you know, we would be in service, helping other people. We would be much less selfish. There would be much less pain in the process of realizing that maybe we wasted a lot of our lives. And and do, and do you find that to be true? Do I find that um, that this it's comforting to know to um, to take? Yeah, I, I, let me let me say it this way. Do you find a correlation between an attitude of selfishness that is uh, positively correlated with 
increased levels of uh, discomfort in the dying process versus the attitude of service and and less discomfort in the dying process. I mean, I guess what I'm asking you is I have seen instances where two people suffering from the same condition, uh, one can be in just intractable pain and no amount of morphine seems to uh, subdue that, make it manageable, and another one doesn't need um drugs and it and there's just a humongous difference and that's not my best word choice but a a very dramatic difference in the attitudes of the people that almost uh, become prognosticators for healthcare professionals about who will suffer more pain than others so my question then is does that compass have any validity according to your research and and your experience um, well, according to, with my experiences, I would say people who are satisfied with their life, who feel like they have done what they wanted to do, you know, would, would, it, that passage is easier than somebody who is not. But I also will, will throw in, there are some physical conditions that cause more pain than other physical conditions. And sure. it's not in, influenced by, you know, the, their um, their emotional satisfaction with life or whether they've been, you know, positive in terms of caring and, and or not. I think if there's some, there's just some conditions that um, are more, you know, more difficult symptoms, more more pain, and, and they're sometimes tougher, more difficult to manage. Um, and I've seen that with with people and they were you know you know good people who had good lives were good family people you know but but the disease that they had uh was pretty miserable and made that passage pretty miserable um as much as people you know hospice does an excellent job of controlling pain and all the other symptoms but it's not always an easy passage um, and that's why I think uh, that's another. Now that area has improved. The palliative care management has gotten much, much better. But I do know people who, you know, say, "Just put me out. The pain is so bad." And you know, they they had good lives. They did they did well. Um, but it's the disease that the physical manifestation that's causing all that all that pain. So I think it's kind of a mixed bag. Yeah. I don't know that you could say, you know, uh, there's a definite relationship between one and the other. Sounds like there isn't. It, you know, still reflecting a minute on the setup piece, should loved ones, in your view, uh, or others, comfort the dying by encouraging them to let go? Or, you know, I mean, you're trained to save lives, uh, and we tend to want, you know, our loved ones to to remain here. Are we should we encourage them to fight and and live on? And and, and I mean, let's assume we're dealing with somebody that we have not 
placed in a hospice because they have been pronounced terminal and there's no question but what you know they're just going to die at some point but we're dealing with somebody you know who is in a situation where this was a sudden event and we don't know if they're going to recover or they're not going to recover should we be encouraging them to die um i my experience with working with patients in, in a whole variety of fields is always take your cues from the patient. You know, where are they? What do they want to happen? You know, do they, do they, um, you know, do they want to fight or do they, are they ready and are they wanting to, to let go? I think we should not impose what we think, you know, would be good for them, but have them say what would work, what would work best for them. Now, obviously, that's difficult when, if they're not speaking, uh, you know, you can't always, always say, but you can always just, you know, if the person is, is still alive but not responding, you can always tell them, you know, you care about them, you want the best for them, whatever they think is best. Um, and, and the thing, the thing about dying patients too is sometimes they will wait till somebody comes that they want to be there. Um, and they're not, they're, you know, for, for medically, they look like they're, you know, terminally ill. But until that person shows up, they'll hang on. And then once that person is there, that's when they'll, they'll pass on. Or the opposite. They don't, they don't want to die when somebody's, when anybody's in the room they want to wait till everybody goes because they can feel that they, those, their relatives want them to stay, and then they pass on. So either one can happen. Now, that actually happened uh, with my mother. She was in a nursing home, and we weren't sure exactly kind of what you said, whether she was going to make it or not. And um, she had fallen, and she had developed pneumonia, and she had turned 90, and she was ready. She was really ready. You know, she, she always said she had a good run. And um, so I had gone to see her, and she was alert and oriented, and she, you know, told me about all her affairs, and we, we worked out. She told me what she wanted to have done in terms of her funeral and all her arrangements. So then I came back to North Carolina, and at this point we still didn't know what she was going to, what was going to happen. And my daughter went and stayed with her and then called me and said, you know, she was unconscious and she wasn't responding. And, you know, so we drove up there. Now we drove up there and I got there and 45 minutes after I got there, she, she passed on. So there was no, you know, nothing happened. It just happened to be that, you know, the family was there. I got there and then she passed on. So, it, you know, people do that a lot, and you just, I think you have to take your clues from the person, the patient. You know, I, I wanted to discuss with you the nine distinct transpersonal events that you have in your book. And we have indirectly picked up on some of them, the NDEs, the OBEs, the deathbed communications. But I'm looking at my clock and I can see, well, we're going to be out of time. Maybe we'll get back to some of that. But I want all the listeners to know that we are just 
barely introducing some of the ideas, some of the information that uh, Dr. Lawrence shares in her book, and it is a great book, The Death View Revolution. I promised that we would take questions, and so I'm not going to hoard all the time. Instead, I'm going to turn to our chat room at this time and give them a chance for their questions. Mark out of the chat room, Dr. Lawrence, asks this. A few months ago, a guest discussed what he referred to as death experiences, whereby the brain was clinically dead, but the person still recalled experiences and then returned to consciousness. Is there a distinction between such death experiences and near-death experiences? Now, that <clears throat> that's an excellent question. Um, and I, when I was writing this book, I came across something that hasn't been addressed yet. Um, we, you know, when people say they're somebody's clinically dead in the hospital, you know, they usually look at brain waves activities or, you know, no, no heart rate, um, you know, you know, all the typical signs of somebody having died. Um, I actually interviewed a patient who was pronounced dead. The doctor filled out the death certificate. And 20 minutes later, the, after the code was called, the nurse went in to get her ready for the family, and the patient started talking to her. So, so those that does happen, and, and we don't really understand. But one of the things that was interesting for me when I, when I was doing this book is when you have somebody, for example, on hospice who's terminally ill, who dies and, and then does not come back, there are reports that people have of seeing mist or a smoke or something leaving the body when that person has expired. And I've act- I have actually interviewed people who said they have seen this. And sometimes two people will see it at the same time. But I have not seen that happen or reported with near-death experiences. So maybe we're not looking for it. Maybe it happens and nobody has seen it or looked for it or or documented it. But it seems it doesn't, hasn't been reported as you don't see that mist or fog leaving the body when when somebody has a near-death experience as, as of yet. And again, I don't know whether we just haven't looked for it and haven't reported it or it doesn't happen. But there are, you know, numbers of reports of people who have been with people as they died, and they have seen it, and those people haven't come back. So, so that might help us, you know, give us one more piece of the puzzle if we start looking at near-death experiences and see if that's what happens, and that's that near-death experience as opposed to really dying. I hope that answers this question. That's a great answer. I mean, I never thought of that. That is a very interesting demarcation. But it it would also suggest then that um, the near-death experience, this is an individual that isn't really dead in that sense. It isn't. Isn't that definition itself a bit of a moving target right now? I mean, uh, I know medicine is looking at, all right, when is it that we say somebody is really dead, especially some of these uh, comatose patients with flatline brainwave activity and so forth um, that, you know, later report that while in that state, they remember conversations the staff was having. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, right, right, that's true. 
Hello? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here. Oh, yeah. okay. I'm sorry. I thought my phone went out again. I'm sorry. Um, yes, that's true. I, you know, and, and again, back to what we were saying before about this death view revolution, you know, being on the cusp of it. So, so you know, when you get people who have been pronounced dead, you know, and from all signs that we know of that we traditionally use to pronounce people, then they come back. You know, so what is that telling us? You know, what are we missing? Um, you know, it, it's a puzzle. And now that more of those, more of those kind of reports are coming out, I think there's going to be more investigation of them, and hopefully down the road, at least more understanding of what's the difference between people who come close to death or near death, and and those who do just do, really do die and pass on. And that that border is not clear at this at this point. But it it it, it would seem to me uh, of such utmost importance that it would be an area that we were really concentrating on research on. Uh, so once again, I guess listen, all you billionaires out there, you know, start thinking about what's important when it comes to. Uh, funding some of this research listen we have just a very short bit of time so i don't have enough time to run take another question from callers or or the chat room but i have to ask you this one i understand that there are folks who have been clinically dead put that in quotation marks who come back and describe pain during that period of time are you familiar with that phenomena? That they they describe pain when they have yeah. when they they were dead, out. but they still felt pain. Um, no, I have not. Usually, uh, people don't feel pain okay. when they're. All right, I'll stop you there. No was no was good. We've got yeah. we've got about right. one minute, and I want you to use that to tell everybody how they can learn more about you, your work, get your books. Please do so. Okay, well, obviously the books are, are available on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. Um, my website is neardeathandyingexperiences.com. Um, my email is on there, so I'd be happy to answer any questions that someone wants to, if someone wants to send me an email with some questions. Um, the book is I hope helpful, and thank you for all your your positive comments about it. I do I do appreciate that, and um, it was it was a very interesting book to write, and I learned a lot myself. Filled in some gaps of information that I hadn't had uh, before. All right, um, and it's a great book, and I want to thank you for your work, Dr. Lawrence, and for your willingness to share it with us today. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you out there for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.